Hello and welcome to today's podcast. Today we'll be telling the stories of two women, one a Polish sweatshop girl and the second a farmer's wife. Both of these stories were part of an anthology collected and published in 1906 by The Independent, a liberal newspaper published in New York City. The publisher was Hamilton Holt. The first story is the story of a Polish sweatshop girl, as I said. She's 16 years old. Uh, Her name is Sadie Frown. She's Jewish. Her story was taken down by a man named Sidney Reed, but as you hear the story, I think you'll hear the voice of Sadie coming through. I think this is a a special story that has a lot of historical significance, and it also captures the voice of a, a young girl, a young woman in New York City in 1906 in a way that very few stories do. So here is Sadie's story. My mother was a tall, handsome, dark-complexioned woman with red cheeks, large brown eyes, and a great quantity of jet-black wavy hair. She was well-educated, being able to talk in Russian, German, Polish, and French, and even to read English print, though of course she did not know what it meant. She kept a little grocer shop in the little village where we lived at first. That was in Poland, somewhere on the frontier. And mother had charge of a gate between the countries, so that everybody who came through the gate had to show her a pass. She was much looked up to by the people who used to come and ask her for advice. Her word was like law among them. She had a wagon in which she used to drive about the country selling her groceries, and sometimes she worked in the fields with my father. The grocer's shop was only one story high and had one window with very small panes of glass. We had two rooms behind it and were happy while my father lived, although we had to work very hard. By the time I was six years of age, I was able to wash dishes and scrub floors, and by the time I was eight, I attended to the shop while my mother was away driving her wagon or working in the fields with my father. She was strong and could work like a man. When I was a little more than ten years of age, my father died. He was a good man and a steady worker, and we never knew what it was to be hungry while he lived. After he died, troubles began, for the rent of our shop was about six dollars a month, and then there were food and clothes to provide. We needed little, it is true, but even soup, black bread, and onions we could not always get. We struggled along till I was nearly 13 years of age, and quite handy at housework and shopkeeping, so far as I could learn them there. But we fell behind in the rent, and Mother kept thinking more and more that we should have to leave Poland and go across the sea to America, where we learned it was much easier to make money. Mother wrote to Aunt Fanny, who lived in New York, and told her how hard it was to live in Poland, and Aunt Fanny advised her to come and bring me. I was out at service at this time, and Mother thought she should leave me, as I had a good place, and come to this country alone, sending for me afterward. But Aunt Fanny would not hear of this. She said we should both come at once, and she went around among our relatives in New York and took up a subscription for our passage. We came by steerage on a steamship in a very dark place that smelt dreadfully, There were hundreds of other people packed in with us, men, women, and children, and almost all of them were sick. It took us 12 days to cross the sea, and we thought we should die. But at last the voyage was over, and we came up and saw the beautiful bay and the big woman with the spikes on her head and the lamp that's lighted at night in her hand. Aunt Fanny and her husband met us at the gate of this country and were very good to us, and soon I had a place to live out. I was a domestic servant, while my mother got work in a factory making white goods. I was only a little over 13 years of age and a greenhorn, so I received $9 a month in board and lodging, which I thought was doing well. Mother, who, as I said, was very clever, made $9 a week on white goods, 
which means all sorts of underclothing and is high-class work. But Mother had a very gay disposition. She liked to go around and see everything, and friends took her about New York at night, and she caught a bad cold and coughed and coughed. She really had hasty consumption, but she didn't know it, and I didn't know it, and she tried to keep on working, but it was no use. She had not the strength. Two doctors attended her, but they could do nothing, and at last she died and I was left alone. I had saved money while out at service, but mother's sickness and funeral swept it all away, and now I had to begin all over again. Aunt Fanny had always been anxious for me to get an education, as I did not know how to read or write, and she thought that was wrong. Schools are different in Poland from what they are in this country, and I was always too busy to learn to read and write. So when mother died, I thought I would try to learn a trade, and then I could go to school at night and learn to speak the English language well. So I went to work in Allen Street in Manhattan in what they call a sweatshop, making skirts by machine. I was new at the work, and the foreman scolded me a great deal. Now then, he would say, this place is not for you to be looking around in. Attend to your work. That is what you have to do. I did not know at first that you must not look around and talk, and I made many mistakes with the sewing, so that I was often called a stupid animal. But I made four dollars a week by working six days in the week, for there are two Sabbaths here, our own Sabbath, that comes on a Saturday, and the Christian Sabbath that comes on Sunday. It is against our law to work on our own Sabbath, so we worked on their Sabbath. In Poland, I and my father and mother used to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath, but here the women don't go to the synagogue much, though the men do. They are shut up working hard all the week long, and when the Sabbath comes, they like to sleep long in bed, and afterward they must go out where they can breathe the air. The rabbis are strict here, but not so strict as in the old country. I lived at this time with a girl named Ella, who worked in the same factory and made five dollars a week. We had the room all to ourselves, paying a dollar fifty a week for it, and doing light housekeeping. It was in Allen Street, and the window looked out of the back which was good because there was an elevated railroad in front, and in summertime a great deal of dust and dirt came in at the front windows. We were on the fourth story and could see all that was going on in the back rooms of the houses behind us, and early in the morning the sun used to come in our window. We did our cooking on the oil stove and lived well, as this list of our expenses for one week will show. And here's our list. Ella and Sadie for food, one week. Tea, six cents. Cocoa, ten cents. Bread and rolls, forty cents. Canned vegetables, twenty cents. Potatoes, ten cents. Milk, twenty-one cents. Fruit, twenty cents. Butter, fifteen cents. Meat, sixty cents. Fish, fifteen cents. Laundry, twenty-five cents. For a total of two dollars and forty-two cents. Add rent for a dollar fifty for a grand total of three dollars and ninety-two cents. Of course, we could have lived cheaper, but we were both fond of good things and felt that we could afford them. We paid eighteen cents for a half pound of tea, so as to get it good, and it lasted us three weeks because we had cocoa for breakfast. We paid five cents for six rolls and five cents a loaf for bread, which was the best quality. Oatmeal cost us ten cents for three and a half pounds, and we often had it in the morning or Indian meal porridge in the place of it, costing about the same. Half a dozen eggs cost about eighteen cents on an average, and we could get all the meat we wanted for a good hearty meal for twenty cents: two pounds of chops, or a steak, or a bit of veal, or a neck of lamb, something like that. Fish included butterfish, porgies, codfish, and smelts, averaging about eight cents a pound. Some people who buy at the last of the market, when the men with the carts want to go home, can get things very cheap. But they are likely to be stale, and we did not often do that with fish, fresh vegetables, fruit, milk, or meat. Things that kept well, we did buy that way and got good bargains. 
I got 30 potatoes for 10 cents one time, though generally I could not get more than 15 of them for that amount. Tomatoes, onions, and cabbages, too. We bought that way and did well. And we found a factory where we could buy the finest broken crackers for three cents a pound and another place where we got broken candy for 10 cents a pound. Our cooking was done on an oil stove, and the oil for the stove and the lamp cost us 10 cents a week. It cost me $2 a week to live, and I had a dollar a week to spend on clothing and pleasure and saved the other dollar. I went to night school, but it was hard work learning at first as I did not know much English. Two years ago, I came to Brownsville, where so many of my people are and where I have friends. I got work in a factory making underskirts, all sorts of cheap underskirts like cotton and calico for the summer and woolen for the winter, but never the silk, satin, or velvet underskirts. I earned $4.50 a week and lived on $2 a week, the same as before. I got a room in the house of some friends who live near the factory. I pay a dollar a week for the room and I'm, and I'm allowed to do light housekeeping, that is, cook my meals in it. I get my own breakfast in the morning, just a cup of coffee and a roll, and at noontime I come home to dinner and take a plate of soup and a slice of bread with the lady of the house. My food for a week costs a dollar, just as it did in Allen Street, and I have the rest of my money to do as I like with. I'm earning $5.50 a week now and will probably get another increase soon. It isn't piecework in our factory, but one is paid by the amount of work done just the same, so it is like piecework. All the hands get different amounts, some as low as $3.50 and some of the men as high as $16 a week. The factory is in the third story of a brick building. It is in a room 20 feet long and 14 broad. There are 14 machines in it. I and the daughter of the people with whom I live work two of these machines. The other operators are all men, some young and some old. At first, a few of the young men were rude. When they passed me, they would touch my hair and talk about my eyes and my red cheeks and make jokes. I cried and said that if they did not stop, I would leave the place. The boss said that they should not be, that no one must annoy me. Some of the other men stood up for me too, especially Henry, who said two or three times that he wanted to fight. Now the men all treat me very nicely. It was just that some of them did not know better, not being educated. Henry is tall and dark, and he has a small mustache. His eyes are brown and large. He is pale and much educated, having been to school. He knows a great many things and has some money saved, I think nearly $400. He is not going to be in a sweatshop all the time, but will soon be in the real estate business, for a lawyer that he knows well has promised to open an office and pay him to manage it. Henry has seen me home every night for a long time and makes love to me. He wants me to marry him, but I'm not 17 yet, and I think that is too young. He is only 19, so we can wait. I have been to the fortune tellers three or four times, and she always tells me that, though I have had such a lot of trouble, I am to be very rich and happy. I believe her because she has told me many things that have come true, so I will keep on working in the factory for a time. Of course, it is hard, but I would have to work hard even if I was married. I get up at half past five o'clock every morning and make myself a cup of coffee on the oil stove. I eat a bit of bread and perhaps some fruit and then go to work. Often I get there soon after six o'clock so as not to be so as to be in good time, though the factory does not open till seven. I have heard that there is a sort of clock that calls you at the very time you want to get up, but I can't believe that because I don't see how the clock would know. At seven o'clock we all sit down to our machines and the boss brings to each one the pile of work that he or she is to finish during the day, what they call in English their stint. This pile is put down beside the machine, and as soon as the skirt is done, it is laid on the other side of the machine. 
Sometimes the work is not all finished by six o'clock, and then the one who is behind must work overtime. Sometimes one is finished ahead of time and gets away at four or five o'clock, but generally we are not done till six o'clock. The machines go like mad all day because the faster you work, the more money you get. Sometimes in my haste, I get my finger caught and the needle goes right through it. It goes so quick though that it doesn't hurt much. I bind the finger up with a piece of cotton and go on working. We all have accidents like that. Where the needle goes through the nail, it makes a sore finger, or where it splinters a bone, it does much harm. Sometimes a finger has to come off. Generally, though, one can be cured by a salve. All the time we are working, the boss walks about examining the finished garments and making us do them over again if they are not just right. So we have to be careful as well as swift. But I'm getting so good at the work that within a year I'll be making seven dollars a week, and then I can save at least three dollars and fifty cents a week. I have over two hundred dollars saved now. The machines are all run by foot power, and at the end of the day, one feels so weak that there is a great temptation to lie right down and sleep. But you must go out and get air and have some pleasure. So instead of lying down, I go out generally with Henry. Sometimes we go to Coney Island, where there are good dancing places, and sometimes we go to Olmer Park to picnics. I'm very fond of dancing, and in fact, all sorts of pleasure. I go to the theater quite often, and I like those plays that make you cry a great deal. The Two Orphans is good. Last time I saw it, I cried all night because of the hard times that the children had in the play. I'm going to see it again when it comes here. For the last two winters, I have been going to night school. I've learned reading, writing, and arithmetic. I can read quite well in English now, and I look at the newspapers every day. I read English books too sometimes. The last one that I read was *A Mad Marriage* by Charlotte Brame. She's a grand writer and makes things just like real to you. You feel as if you were the poor girl yourself going to get married to a rich duke. I'm going back to night school again this winter. Plenty of my friends go there. Some of the women in my class are more than forty years of age. Like me, they did not have a chance to learn anything in the old country. It is good to have an education. It makes you feel higher. Ignorant people are all low. People say now that I'm clever and fine in conversation. We recently finished a strike in our business. It spread all over, and the United Brotherhood of Garment Workers was in it. That takes in the cloak makers, coat makers, and all the others. We struck for shorter hours, and after being out for four weeks, won the fight. We only have to work nine and a half hours a day now, and we get the same pay as before. So the union does good after all, in spite of what some people say against it. That it just takes our money and does nothing. I pay twenty-five cents a month to the union, but I do not begrudge that because it is for our benefit. The next strike is going to be for a raise of wages, which we all ought to have. But though I belong to the union, I'm not a socialist or an anarchist. I don't know exactly what those things mean. There's a little expense for charity too. If any worker is injured or sick, we all give money to help. Some of the women blame me very much because I spend so much money on clothes. They say that instead of a dollar a week, I ought not to spend more than twenty-five cents a week on clothes, but that I should save the rest. But a girl must have clothes if she's to go into good society at Olmer Park or Coney Island or the theater. Those who blame me are the old country people who have old-fashioned notions, but the people who have been here a long time know better. A girl who does not dress well is stuck in a corner, even if she's pretty. And Aunt Fanny says that I do just right to put on plenty of style. I have many friends, and we often have jolly parties. Many of the young men like to talk to me, but I don't go out with any except Henry. Lately, he has been urging me more and more to get married, but I think I'll wait. 
So that is the story of Sadie Frown. I think what makes that story most compelling to me is just hearing the voice of Sadie. Sadie so wanting to enjoy life and have fun. Sadie going to Coney Island and spending money on clothes and that the fact that the you know older women are harassing her, you know, the women from the old country and telling her she should be saving money. You know, and this is a young girl who has been on her own since she was 13 years old. And I can imagine the rebellion of that young girl against those those women and, and how she revels in the freedom that she has and, and the money that she has. Um, if you put $200 that she saved into dollars today, you know, $2,014, that's, that's close to $5,000. So, you know, that's not insubstantial for a working girl. I mean, it's enough money to make a bit of a difference in her life. So I hope that um, Sadie uh, went on to have the life that the fortune teller promised her. She sounds like a feisty young woman that I, I would love to have met. Our next story is the life story of a farmer's wife. It was written by the farmer's wife herself. She's um, from Illinois. And in many ways, this story is a departure from Sadie's story. First is the obvious. Um, this is a rural story rather than an urban story. The author is an American. She is not an immigrant. And she's older. She's 31 years old, had been married 13 years when she wrote down this story. And lastly, and I think most important to me, is the the difference in the sense of hope, confidence, um, sense of agency that Sadie just explodes with, that this farmer's wife really struggles with. And as you hear this story, it sounds as though what she's really struggling with is conflict and standing up for herself and telling her husband what she wants and um, standing her ground. She understands that she can do that, but it's difficult for her. And in many ways, this story to me feels both from another era and somewhat modern at the same time, because I I think a lot of people, um, but especially women, still struggle with putting themselves first and saying what they want. So here's her story. I've been a farmer's wife in one of the states of the Middle West for 13 years, and everybody knows that the farmer's wife must, of a necessity, be a very practical woman if she would be a successful one. I'm not a practical woman, and consequently have been accounted a failure by practical friends and especially by my husband, who is wholly practical. We are told that the mating of people of opposite natures promotes intellectuality in the offspring, but I think that happy homes are of more consequence than extreme precocity of children. However, I believe that people who are thinking of mating do not even consider whether it is to be the one or the other. We do know that when people of opposite tastes get married, there's a discordant note runs through their entire married life. It's only a question of which one has the stronger will in determining which tastes shall predominate. In our case, my husband has the stronger will. He is innocent of book learning, is a natural hustler who believes that the only way to make an honest living lies in digging it out of the ground, so to speak. And being a farmer, he finds plenty of digging to do. He has an inherited tendency to be miserly, loves money for its own sake rather than for its purchasing power. And when he has it in his possession, he is loath to part with it, even for the most necessary articles, and prefers to eschew hired help in every possible instance that what he does make may be his very own. No man can run a farm without someone to help him, 
and in this case I have always been called upon and expected to help to do anything that a man would be expected to do. I began this when we were first married, when there were few household duties and no reasonable excuse for refusing to help. I was reared on a farm, was healthy and strong, was ambitious, and the work was not disagreeable. And having no children for the first six years of married life, the habit of going whenever asked to became firmly fixed, and he had no thought of hiring a man to help him, since I could do anything for which he needed help. I was always religiously inclined, brought up to attend Sunday school, not in a haphazard way, but to attend every Sunday all the year round, and when I was 12 years old, I was appointed teacher to a Sunday school class, a position I proudly held until I married at 18 years of age. I was an apt student at school, and before I was 18, I had earned a teacher's certificate of the second grade, and would gladly have remained in school a few more years, but I had unwittingly agreed to marry the man who is now my husband, and though I begged to be released, his will was so much stronger that I was unable to free myself without wounding a loving heart, and could not find it in my nature to do so. All through life I have found my dislike for giving offense to be my undoing. When we were married and moved away from my home church, I fain would have adopted the church of my new residence, but my husband did not like to go to church, but rather go visiting on Sundays, and rather than have my right hand give offense, I cut it off. I always had a passion for reading. During girlhood, it was along educational lines. In young womanhood, it was for love stories, which remained ungratified because my father thought it sinful to read stories of any kind, and especially love stories. Later, when I was married, I borrowed everything I could find in the line of novels and stories and read them by stealth still, for my husband thought it a willful waste of time to read anything and that it showed a lack of love for him if I would rather read than to talk to him when I had a few moments of leisure. And, in order to avoid giving offense and still gratify my desire, I would only read when he was not at the house, thereby greatly curtailing my already too limited reading hours. In reading, I got glimpses now and then of the great poets and authors, which aroused a great desire for a thorough perusal of them all. But up till the present time, I have not been permitted to satisfy this desire. As the years have rolled on, there has been more work and less leisure until it is only by the greatest effort that I may read current news. It is only during the last three years that I have had the news to read, for my husband is so very penurious that he would never consent to subscribing for papers of any kind, and that old habit of avoiding that which would give offense was so fixed that I did not dare to break it. The addition of two children to our family never altered or interfered with the established order of things to any appreciable extent. My strenuous outdoor life agreed with me, and even when my children were born, I was splendidly prepared for the ordeal and made rapid recovery. I still hoed and tended the garden, or the truck patches, still watered the stock and put out feed for them, still went to the hay field and helped harvest and housed the bounteous crops, still helped harvest the golden grain later on when the cereals ripened, often took one team and dragged ground to prepare the seed bed for wheat at the time, while my husband was using the other team on another farm which he owned several miles away. While the children were babies, they were left at the house, and when they were larger, they would go with me to my work. Now they are large enough to help a little during the summer and to go to school in winter. They help a great deal during the fruit canning season. In fact, can and do work at almost everything, pretty much as I do. All this season, from the coming in of the first fruit until the making of mincemeat at Christmas time, I put up canned goods for future use, 
Gather in many bushels of field beans and other crops usually raised on the farm. Make sauerkraut, ketchup, pickles, etc. This is a vague general idea of how I spend my time. My work is so varied that it would be difficult indeed to describe a typical day's work. Any bright morning in the latter part of May, I'm out of bed at four o'clock. Next, after I have dressed and combed my hair, I start a fire in the kitchen stove. And while the stove is getting hot, I go to my flower garden and gather a choice half-blown rose and a spray of bride's breath and arrange them in my hair and sweep the floors and then cook breakfast. While the other members of the family are eating breakfast, I strain away the morning's milk, for my husband milks the cows while I get breakfast, and fill my husband's dinner pail, for he will go to work on our other farm for the day. By this time it is half past five o'clock. My husband is gone to his work and the stock loudly pleading to be turned into the pastures. The younger cattle, a half dozen steers, are left in the pasture at night, and I now drive the two cows a half-quarter mile and turn them in with the others, come back, and then there's a horse in the barn that belongs in the field, where there is no water, which I take to a spring quite a distance from the barn, bring it back, and turn it into a field with the sheep, a dozen in number, which are housed at night. The young calves are then turned out into the warm sunshine, and the stock hogs, which are kept in a pen, are clamoring for feed, and I carry a pailful of swill to them, and hasten to the house and turn out the chickens and put out feed and water for them, and it is perhaps 6.30 a.m. I have not eaten breakfast yet, but that can wait. I make the beds next and straighten things up in the living room, for I dislike to have the early morning caller find my house topsy-turvy. When this is done, I go to the kitchen, which also serves as a dining room, and uncover the table and take a mouthful of food occasionally as I pass to and fro at my work until my appetite is appeased. By the time the work is done in the kitchen, it is about 7.15 a.m., and the cool morning hours have flown, and no hoeing done in the garden yet, and the children's toilet has to be attended to, and churning has to be done. Finally, the children are washed and churning done, and it is eight o'clock, and the sun getting hot. But no matter, weeds die quickly when cut down in the heat of the day, and I use the hoe to a good advantage until the dinner hour, which is 11.30 a.m. We come in, and I comb my hair and put fresh flowers in it, and eat a cold dinner, put out feed and water for the chickens, set a hen, perhaps, sweep the floors again, sit down and rest, and read a few moments, and it is nearly one o'clock. And I sweep the dooryard while I am waiting for the clock to strike the hour. I make and sew a flower bed, dig around some shrubbery, and go back to the garden to hoe until time to do the chores at night. But ere long, some hogs come up to the back gate through the wheat field, and when I go to see what is wrong, I find that the cows have torn the fence down, and they too are out in the wheat field. With much difficulty, I get them back into their own domain and repair the fence. I hoe in the garden till four o'clock, then I go into the house and get supper and prepare something for the dinner pail tomorrow, when supper is already... It is set aside, and I pull a few hundred plants of tomato, sweet potato, or cabbage for transplanting, set them in a cool, moist place where they will not wilt, and I then go after the horse, water him, and put him in the barn, call the sheep and house them, and go after the cows and milk them, feed the hogs, put down the hay for three horses, and put oats and corn in their troughs, and set those plants, and come in and fasten up the chickens, and it is dark. By this time it is 8 o'clock p.m., My husband has come home, and we are eating supper. When we are through eating, I make the beds ready, and the children and their father go to bed, and I wash the dishes and get things in shape to get breakfast quickly next morning. It is now 9 o'clock p.m., and after a short prayer, I retire for the night. As a matter of course, there is hardly two days together which require the same routine, yet every day is as fully occupied in some way or other as this one, 
with varying tasks as the seasons change. In early spring, we are planting potatoes, making plant beds, planting garden, early corn patches, setting strawberries, planting corn, melons, cowpeas, sugarcane, beans, popcorn, peanuts, etc. Oats are sown in March and April, but I do not help to do that because the ground is too cold. Later in June, we harvest clover hay, in July, timothy hay, and in August, pea hay. Winter wheat is ready to harvest the latter part of June, and oats the middle of July. These are the main crops, supplemented by cabbages, melons, potatoes, tomatoes, etc. Fully half of my time is devoted to helping my husband, more than half during the active work season, and not that much during the winter months. Only a very small portion of my time is devoted to reading. My reading matter accumulates during the week, and I think I will stay at home on Sunday and read, but as we have many visitors on Sunday, I'm generally disappointed. I sometimes visit my friends on Sunday because they are so insistent that I should, though I would prefer spending the day reading quietly at home. I've never had a vacation, but if I should be allowed one, I should certainly be pleased to spend it in an art gallery. As winter draws nigh, I make snug all the vegetables and apples, pumpkins and such things as would damage by being frozen, and gather in the various kinds of nuts which grow in our woods to eat during the long cold winter. My husband's work keeps him away from home during the day, all the winter except in extremely inclement weather, and I feed and water the stock which have been brought in off the pastures, milk the cows and do all the chores which are to be done about a farm in winter. By getting up early and hustling around pretty lively, I do all this and countless other things, keep house in a crude, simple manner, wash, make and mend our clothes, make rag carpets, cultivate and keep more flowers than anybody in the neighborhood, raise some chickens to sell and some to keep, and even teach instrumental music sometimes. I've always had an itching to write, and with all my multitudinous cares, I have written in a fitful way for several papers, which do not pay for such matter, just because I was pleased to see my articles in print. I have a long list of correspondents who write regularly and often to me, and by hook and crook I keep up with my letter writing, for next to reading I love to write and receive letters, though my husband says I will break him up buying so much writing material, when, as a matter of course, I pay for it out of my own scanty income. I am proud of my children, and have, from the time they were young babies, tried to make model children of them. They were not spoiled as some babies are, and their education was begun when I first began to speak to them, with the idea of not having the work to do over later on. True, they did not learn to spell until they were old enough to start school, because I did not have the time to teach them that. But, in going about my work, I told them stories of all kinds in plain, simple language, which they could understand, and after once hearing a story, they could repeat it in their own way which did not differ greatly from mine, to any who cared to listen, for they were not timid or afraid of anybody. I have watched them closely, and never have missed an opportunity to correct their errors until their language is as correct as that of the average adult, as far as their vocabulary goes, and I have tried to make it as exhaustive as my time would permit. I must admit that there is little time for the higher life for myself, but my soul cries out for it, and my heart is not in my homely duties. They are done in a mechanical, abstracted way, not worthy of a woman of high ambitions. But my ambitions are along other lines. I do not mean to say that I have no ambition to do my work well and to be a model housekeeper, for I would scorn to slight my work intentionally. It is just this way, 
There are so many outdoor duties that the time left for my household duties is so limited that I must rush through them with a view to getting each one done in the shortest possible time in order to get as many things accomplished as possible, for there is never time to do half as much as needs to be done. All the time that I have been going about this work, I have been thinking of things I have read, of things I have on hand to read when I get time, and of other things which I have a desire to read but cannot hope to while the present condition exists. As a natural consequence, there are daily numerous instances of absent-mindedness on my part, many things left undone that I really could have done by leaving off something else of less importance if I had not forgotten the thing of more importance. My husband never fails to remind me that it is caused by my reading so much that I would get along much better if I should never see a book or paper, while really I would be distracted if all reading matter was taken from me. I use an old-fashioned churn, and the process of churning occupies from 30 minutes to 3 hours according to the condition of the cream, and I always read something while churning. And though that may look like a poor way to attain self-culture, yet if your reading is of the nature to bring about the desirable result, one will surely be greatly benefited by these daily exercises. But if one is just reading for amusement, they might read a great deal more than that and not derive any great benefit. But my reading has always been for the purpose of becoming well-informed, and when knitting stockings for the family, I always have a book or paper in reading distance. Or, if I have a moment to rest or to wait on something, I pick up something and read during that time. I even take a paper with me to the fields and read while I stop for rest. I often hear ladies remark that they do not have time to read. I happen to know that they have a great deal more time than I do, and not having any burning desire to read, the time is spent in some other way, often spent at a neighbor's house gossiping about the other neighbors. I suppose it is impossible for a woman to do her best at everything, which she would like to do, but I really would like to. I almost cut sleep out of my routine in trying to keep up all the rows which I have started in on. In the short winter days, I just get the cooking and house straightening done in addition to looking after the stock and poultry and make a garment occasionally and wash and iron the clothes. All the other work is done after night by lamplight. And when the work for the day is over, or at least the most pressing part of it, and the family are all asleep and no one to forbid it, I spend a few hours writing or reading. The minister who performed the marriage ceremony for us has always taken a kindly interest in our fortunes, and knowing of my literary bent has urged me to turn it to account. But there seemed to be so little time and opportunity that I could not think seriously of it, although I longed for a literary career but my education had been dropped for a dozen years or more, and I think I was not properly equipped for that kind of adventure. This friend was so insistent that I was induced to compete for a prize in a short story contest in a popular magazine not long since, though I entered it fully prepared for a failure. About that time, there came in my way the literature of a correspondence school which would teach, among other things, short story writing by mail. It is set forth all the advantages of a literary career and propose properly to equip its students in that course for consideration. This literature I greedily devoured and felt that I could not let the opportunity slip, though I despaired of getting my husband's consent. I presented the remunerative side of it to him, but he could only see the expense of taking the course and wondered how I could find time to spend in the preparation, even if it should be profitable in the end but he believed it was all a hunting, a humbug, that they would get my money and I would hear from them no more. 
When I had exhausted my arguments to no avail, I sent my literary friend to him to try his persuasive powers. The two of us finally gained his consent, but it was on condition that the venture was to be kept profoundly secret, for he felt that there would be nothing but failure, and he desired that no one should know of it and have cause for ridicule. Contrary to his expectations, the school has proven very trustworthy, and I am in the midst of a course of instruction that is very pleasing to me, and I find time for study and exercise between the hours of eight and eleven at night, when the family are asleep and quiet. I am instructed to read a great deal, with a certain purpose in view, but that is impossible, since I had to promise my husband that I would drop all my papers, periodicals, etc., on which I was paying out money for subscription before, before he would consent to my taking the course. This I felt willing to do, that I might prepare myself for more congenial tasks. I hope to accomplish something worthy of note in a literary way, since I have been a failure in all other pursuits. One cannot be anything in particular as long as they try to be everything, and my motto has always been, strive to excel, and it has caused worry wrinkles to mar my countenance, because I could not, under the circumstances, excel in any particular thing. I have a few friends who are so anxious for my success that they are having certain publications of reading matter sent to me at their own expense. However, there's only a very limited number who know of my ambitions. My friends have always been so kind as not to hint that I had not come up to their expectations in various lines, but I inwardly knew that they regarded me as a financial failure. They knew that my husband would not allow the money that was made off the farm to be spent on the family. But still they knew of other men who did the same, yet the wives managed some way to have money of their own and to keep up the family expenses and clothe themselves and the children nicely anyhow. But they did not seem to take into account that these thrifty wives had the time all for their own in which to earn a livelihood while my time was demanded by my husband to be spent in doing things for him which would contribute to the general proceeds of the farm, yet would add nothing to my income since I was supposed to look to my own resources for my spending money. When critical housewives spend the day with me, I always feel that my surroundings appear to a disadvantage. They cannot possibly know the inside workings of our home, and knowing myself to be capable of the proper management of a home, if I had the chance of others, I feel like I am receiving a mental criticism from them which is unmerited, and when these smart neighbors tell me proudly how many young chicks they have, and how many eggs and old hens they have sold during the year, I am made to feel that they are crowing over their shrewdness which they regard as lacking in me, because they will persist in measuring my opportunities by their own. I might add that the neighbors among whom I live are illiterate and unmusical, and that my redeeming qualities in their eyes are my superior education and musical abilities. They are kind enough to give me more than justice on these qualities because they are poor judges of such matters. But money is king, and if I might turn my literary bent to account and surround myself with the evidences of prosperity, I may yet hope fully to redeem myself in their eyes, and I know that I will have attained my ambition in that line. And that is the story of the farmer's wife. The story was was difficult for me to to read. Um, you know, hearing this farmer's wife who works so so very hard at a job that um, she doesn't want to be doing, that she's not recognized for or paid for. Uh, she's brutalized emotionally, it sounds like. I don't think there's it, it, there's no mention of physical abuse, but she's emotionally and intellectually 
brutalized by her husband. Um, she beats herself up. Um, there's no mention of her kids and her relationship with them, but her neighbors silently judge her and sometimes probably indirectly say things that um, are harsh and cruel. And to me, the ironic part of that is that she's visiting with people when she doesn't even want to be there. Um, she wants to be reading. She wants to be writing. She has these desires and hopes and wants for the future that are mostly unrealized. You know, at the end, she has taken some control with the help of her minister, pastor, and is taking a correspondence course to write. And she published this anonymously. So, you know, we can't go find out if she was successful in her writing career. But, um, you know, after 13 years of marriage, you know, this woman is finally in a place where she asked for something. Um, she had, you know, her, her reading material taken away at the same time. And, um, you know, her husband fears that she'll fail and there'll be ridicule, but she has taken a stand. So hard to read, but I think it is probably not a, an unusual story, you know, as, as women became more educated and wanted to strike out and do things that they wanted to do, um, society pushed back on them. And I think that's especially true for women who are rural and also middle-class women. And we'll explore that a little bit more. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed um, both Sadie's story and the farmer's wife. Um, very different stories, but I think um, you know, both representative of the way women were living at the turn of the 20th century. Thank you. Thank you.